Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Can you please stand for our opening prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. St. Michael the Archangel, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Good evening. Our speaker hasn't shown up tonight, so... Well, I'm feeling a little under the water this evening. That's as good as my jokes get, so if you didn't like that one, we're out of luck. And we have a very boring time. I want to begin by just giving a quick outline of our lecture for all of you to kind of give us some direction of where we're going tonight. What's our goal? Obviously, in 45 minutes to an hour, we can't accomplish a whole lot because we could spend 10 or, or more classes just on the biblical text itself. After some introductory remarks, we're going to examine some modern literary objections to the Genesis text, to the flood text. What do they have to say against it as a historical narrative? We're going to take a quick look at the Epic of Gilgamesh and how it fits into the picture. Obviously, in 45 minutes to an hour, it's going to be a very quick look. Uh, I encourage you to go home and do study, and I'll be posting in the next couple of days a number of important articles on the topic. We're going to give an answer to the, or we're going to try to give an answer at least, to the modern literary objections. And we're going to take a second look at the dating of the Epic of Gilgamesh in comparison to Noah's Flood. And we'll conclude with something of a Catholic answer to the whole situation. How does that sound? Sounds okay? There can be no doubt that the impact which the story of Noah's flood has had on the Jewish and Christian traditions. Few stories have fired the imagination of believers through the centuries. We find Noah and the story of the flood mentioned not only in the book of Genesis, but also in the genealogies of First Chronicles, also by the prophet Ezekiel, and by the prophet Isaiah. Noah is also mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke. Noah is mentioned, referred to as we're going to look at in just a moment, in Genesis chapter 24, on the lips of our Savior himself. He's mentioned by St. Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews. And he's mentioned twice by St. Peter in his first epistle and his second epistle. 
the catechetical impact which the flood narrative has had has been tremendous. Not only has it been seen as an image of death and resurrection, it's been used, as we'll see in a moment by our Lord, as an image of the fall of Jerusalem, and therefore also, by extension, an image or a type of the end of all things, the end of the world. It's been used as an image also of baptism and the beginning of the new life in Christ. If you were to look at traditionally built baptistries, you would notice one theme that stretches throughout all of these baptistries, and that is the image of Noah's flood as an image of baptism. We can talk about that a little bit later. Many churches and baptistries are built based upon Noah's flood itself. In fact, I was just thinking, St. Michael's, how many sides does St. Michael's have? Is it an octagon? It is. I do believe it's an octagon. I believe it has eight sides. It's built with eight sides to refer us to Noah's flood. Did you know that? How many here are from St. Michael's? How many of you knew that? Aha. Uh-huh. So we have lots to learn tonight. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Just for a little context, I'm going to give a couple verses. We're going to skip, and then we're going to hit into, come into the text. So, chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. We're going to skip for time's sake down to verse 34. Verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. We'll stop there. We have a problem. And the problem is this. That the entire Christian tradition has placed great emphasis on Noah's flood. On this story as a paradigm for our salvation. And yet, modern biblical scholarship questions its authenticity questions its historical reliability, and questions its unity. We need to take a quick look at that to see why they place this interpretation there. Did the flood actually take place? Or is it a myth? A legend of the ancient Middle East? Should it be categorized with the Epic of Gilgamesh and other clearly mythological stories of the ancient world? Can we rely upon the Genesis account of Noah's flood as a story that can have major impact of the religious conscience of people today? Or should it be relegated to children's coloring books? This is our question. The answer to these questions is not so much to be found in the realm of geology and in the realm of archaeology, but ultimately the questions that are placed before us today by modern scholars are placed there in the realm of philosophy. And to understand the argument, 
we have to go back to late 18th and early 19th century post-enlightenment period. I want to recommend you, how many of you were here when Dr. Marshner was here to give his talk on the roots of modernism? I know Dr. Marshner is hard. Okay? Most of the stuff, he does not know how to teach in an undergraduate level, let alone at parish level. Okay? He always teaches. I took him for undergraduate courses. I also took him for graduate courses. He taught them all the same. He always teaches at a very difficult level. I highly recommend you get his CDs on the roots of modernism. They're phenomenal. Some of my comments are going to be based upon what he said. I recommend you go back and you listen to that series two, three, and four times. If you're still confused, it's time to get out some books and do some research. We have to go back to the philosophical thought of Immanuel Kant. Kant did not believe that man could know anything, say, in the real, in reality. Everything man knew was simply appearances to him which his mind prepared or impressions which he had which were not based in reality. I have a book here. It's hard. It's black. These things are only things which my mind has produced. Ideas which it has produced. And it has nothing to do with really what's out there in reality. This is a total subjective turn to knowledge. And you say, oh, what's going on here? Look, a traditional understanding of knowledge is simply this, that we are made, our intellects are made to understand things outside of us. To be able to process the things which are in the real, which are in reality. To come to know them and to grow in union with them. But Kant turned that system around and questioned whether he could ever get out of his mind in the first place. Now, if there's any philosophers with us tonight, I apologize. We have to go quickly, so we'll keep it very simple. Two schools of thought were born out of Immanuel Kant's subjectivism. If you're taking notes, you can write down Kant subjectivism. It's subjectivism versus objectivism. A knowledge of what is truly out there, objects, versus a knowledge simply based in the subject. Does that make sense? Okay. Two schools of thought, idealism and positivism. Positivism is the key school that we need to look at tonight. Positivism said that genuine knowledge only takes place through empirical sciences. In fact, it went in its most radical form. It went a little further than Kant. Kant said, I can't know what's really out there. If there's things out there, I can't really get to them. I don't know what things really are. But positivism said, Immanuel, Kant, why do you think there's things out there anyways? <laughs> Everything that is, is simply a product of my mind. In its most radical form. Ultimately, positivism found its way to Find knowledge simply in empirical sciences. Only things which can be tested can be known. Only things which I can put under the microscope can be known. This had a profound effect on historical studies. History no longer is the relating of what happened in a past event. How could you know what really happened in a past event? 
It has to be tested. And how do you test testimony? How do you test somebody's words? And so history turned to geology and archaeology to find pieces of information, random pieces of information, which it could gain to make a list of ideas. Randomly connected. No real story taking place. There's no real story to be told. History is no longer the relating of what happened in a past event, but listing of individual facts that are discernible through scientific examination. History becomes the study of records. Written records, yes. Pottery. Geological records, and so forth. But never getting at what really happened. Only positing evidence that is gained from the empirical sciences. Notice the problem. Testimony is out. And therefore, the, the value of a written document is not so much about what it says, but to the extent that I can test it. To the extent that I can find out when it was written, how it was put together, and so forth. The story itself is not really reliable because it's one person's interpretation, and that interpretation is not testable at all. Notice what else is out. Divine intervention. How do I test if God ever spoke to Noah? How can I test if Noah ever really lived? Do you see the problem we have? And so, within this school, this new school of historical studies, there was introduced what we might call, and I'll, I'll use it a lot tonight, a hermeneutic or method of suspicion. When a written document from the past is presented to us, we would naturally read it. Our natural tendency as human beings, when somebody who's reliable tells us something, we weigh it, yes, but we tend to receive it if they're trustworthy. But not so with a hermeneutic of suspicion. We question everything. In fact, we question most historical testimony. And we only accept historical testimony, so this school said, please, if anybody's confused, I do not accept this line of thinking, okay? We only accept it to the extent that we can test it. And we test it with other evidence from outside it. And when we test the testimony itself, we test it just like we test a piece of pottery. We take it apart, we date it, and we try to find out what we can find out from an archaeological standpoint. Biblical scholars at the end of the 19th century found themselves in serious trouble. A hermeneutic of suspicion cast over not only the Old Testament, but the entire New Testament also. Does it seem plausible to you that Jesus Christ walked on water? Believers, have you ever seen somebody walk on water? No. Can you test it? No. And therefore, it is a figment of the religious fervor of the people. How can you test if Lazarus was raised from the dead on the third day? Have you ever seen somebody raised from the dead? 
I didn't think so. You've heard of the historical Jesus. Yes? The Jesus stripped of every aspect of divinity. The Jesus stripped of every possible miracle. The Jesus who is always well, a man like the rest of us. You see the problem. The flood is out before we begin. Divine intervention, not possible. Did Noah exist? Were eight people saved in the flood? No, the text is valuable to the extent that we can test it for its original form. Was it the result of previous written tradition or oral tradition and so forth? In the midst of this hermeneutic of suspicion, a particular school started to grow called the documentary. I'll write it out for you. Documentary. Sorry, my handwriting is terrible. Hypothesis. The documentary hypothesis. Its greatest proponent, a German biblical scholar named Julius Wellhausen. Julius Wellhausen published his critique of the first six books of the Bible, what he called the Hexateuch, the first six books of the Bible, in 1876. And he claimed that the Pentateuch was historically unreliable. That it was founded on four sources. In other words, whoever was kind of collecting this information, and we'll talk about this more later, was using four different already existing sources that were floating around the pagan Middle East at the time. And they simply collected these things and jammed them together into the form which we receive today. So much for divine inspiration. So much for mosaic authorship. So much for a traditional interpretation of the text. The Pentateuch, rather, he claimed, is simply, or the Hexateuch, the first six books, but more precisely our topic tonight, the flood narrative, is simply a patchwork of different traditions that were brought together by the believers of Israel, edited down, purified of their pagan aspects, and put into your form what you receive in the Bible today. Is everybody following me? How many of you are familiar with this? Mm, okay. It's extremely important because if you... How many of you have a New American Bible in front of you tonight? Probably a number of you. I was just looking at someone's New American Bible and there this stuff was right there in the footnotes of the first chapter of Genesis. He called his four sources, or for short we'll call them J, E, D, and P, J representing well, Jehovah, or a better understanding of the Hebrew lettering, Yahweh. The title Yahweh is used in any time that the source is used in the Scriptures. E for Elohim. D for the, or the Deuteronomist source. And P for the priestly source. He said that the source for Yahweh was written about 950. The Eloist source, about 850. Okay, and so forth. The priestly source, 500. And I think he said about 650 for the Deuteronomist source. I'm not 
100% positive, but I have it in my notes, 600. There you go. These are a lot of facts to remember when you don't believe them. Okay? <laughs> the most important for our talk tonight are the Yahweh source and the priestly source, which come together in the flood narrative. They also come together, at least in modern biblical scholarship, using Wellhausen's theory in the first two chapters of Genesis. Obviously, the, the Yahwist source is much later, okay, and the priestly source much earlier, finally converging in about 450 in the final text which the Jewish people received and which, which you have in front of you today, giving quite a late date to the book of Genesis. What was going on in 450 B.C.? Yeah, the return from Babylon. Wellhausen said that this priestly source written by the priests as they were in exile in Babylon, trying to remain true to the faith, but also to keep the people close to them. Because away from the temple, they were away from their power source. And so they made God out to be a distant God. A God which was vengeful, which was cold. And the people needed the priests to appease the Lord. Rather, though, the Yahweh source, on the other hand, was quite early, Wellhausen said, and therefore describes a God that's much more primitive and, and more accurate. A God who loves us. A God who cares for us. A God who's very warm and compassionate. I want to read you a, a footnote I found in this little gem of a book, The Flood and Noah's Ark. I have a very nice library I've collected over the years, and every time I need to look at a topic, I look in my library. Behold, there it was, The Flood and Noah's Ark. Nice little quote from a German biblical scholar writing about 1950 who had swallowed this hook, line, and sinker. And he says, I'll refer to this text a number of times, by the way. So if you're taking notes, you might want to jot it down. The Yahwist account full of life and color, and the priestly account, more precise, deliberate, but colder. The final editor did not attempt to suppress the divergences of detail, such as the number of animals taken into the ark, and especially the chronology of the flood. Okay, I'm going to read it to you again, because I want to get you to get a couple of important points here. The Yahweh's account, the older account, full of life and color. And the priestly account, more precise and deliberate, but colder. The priestly account also using the name Elohim as the primary identifier for the priestly account. And Wellhausen was saying the flood narrative is made up of these two sources. We're going to take a closer look at the Genesis account in a minute. But notice, the Yahweh's account full of life and color also identified with Genesis chapter 2. Remember, in Genesis 1 and 2, they're two different, as some would say, opposed, not the case, but supposedly opposed creation stories. And what do you have in Genesis 1? Is God close? Is He loving? Does He care for His people? He's the God of creation. He's the big God. The God who's distant, who makes the world and the planets and so forth. But in the second account, God is close. He's Yahweh. And in fact, looking at the text, Wellhausen discovered that indeed the name for God changes from chapter 1 of Genesis to chapter 2 of Genesis. 
Aha, Wellhausen said. Therefore, it must come from two different sources. And same with Noah's flood. Okay? Again, remember, because Wellhausen found this priestly source in the flood narrative, he gave a very late date to it, 450 B.C. Hold on to that. I want to examine a few points, so pull out your Bibles. Open your Bibles to chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. When you see Lord there, the original Hebrew reads Yahweh. Okay, so Wellhausen says, ha ha, right here this verse is from the Yahwist source, written quite early. And so we're going to find all sorts of warm, fuzzy things about God in it. But, look at chapter 6, verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. You see the name God there, Elohim. Two different names used for God, and Wellhausen says, Aha, therefore, and I don't mean just after Wellhausen, because let me tell you, the entire biblical world took this theory in. It was hard to find any scholar who would take anything but this theory. Aha. Therefore, within the flood narrative, you will find different sources patched together into the whole text. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. It's a good example of what we're talking about. And when the Lord, Yahweh, when Yahweh said in his heart, Aha. He has a heart. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. And so forth. He repents. God repents. Yahweh repents. And therefore this must be from the Yahweh's source. Because we know that the priests are bad. They want to keep the people far from God. And so they're not going to have this kind of language. Finally, look at chapter 7, verse 16. A very interesting verse that Wellhausen says, you know, it's just got too much of both in it, so we've got to chop it in half. Chapter 7, verse 16. And they that entered, male and female of all flesh, went as Elohim, God, went as Elohim had commanded him. Do you see? The angry God who commands. And sure enough, Elohim is used. And look at the next part of the sentence. And Yahweh shut him in. Yahweh, the caring God, the warm fuzzy God, took the door and closed it in to protect Noah and his family. Well, that was sweet of him. Okay, do you see? I don't mean to make, I mean, okay, I'm making it up a little bit, but what else? Look at chapter 6, verse 19. Wellhausen and his, and his disciples say, look, there's not only changing in the name, but this further, there's problems in the text itself. Chapter 6, verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. How many are supposed to go into the ark, friends? Two. But I want you to look at chapter 7, verse 2. Take with you, how many? Seven pairs. Do you see? Contradiction. And therefore, again, evidence 
that we have two different foreign sources that are floating around at the time, jammed together by the final editor in about 450 B.C., again, very late, to give you what you have today. Will hasn't gone so far as to take the entire text apart like this, associating one verse here and one verse there and one paragraph here and one paragraph there, side by side, until he's shown that you can read each source independently and come up with a full story of the flood. I want to point out one other problem, and that is the chronology of the text. In chapter 7, verse 17, the flood continued 40 days upon the earth. How many days? Look at verse 24. And the waters prevailed upon the earth. How many? 150 days. Catholics, You've been duped. <laughs> duped into accepting this fairy tale, which is so ridiculously patched together that the final editor didn't even care enough to get rid of the contradictions. You can go further. Look at verse 3. And the waters receded from the earth continually, and at the end of 150 days the waters abated. But in verse 6, and at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the windows of the ark. Do you see? Another contradiction. And therefore, two separate sources. Again, to all those listening, I do not accept this theory. As one scholar put it, Genesis is nothing more than an intricate patchwork. But a patchwork nonetheless. Either the final editor was too stupid to notice the repetitions and apparent contradictions, or he was so careless that he did not care enough to rectify the errors. Either way, we are presented with a very unusual editor, one who takes so much care as to put each verse together so that you, after thousands of years of reading, would think that there is one story being told, when in fact, there's actually two. So careful he was, and yet not careful enough to edit the text so it did not contain contradictions. Do you see the problem? Yes? Okay. This theory became dominant in biblical scholarship in the 19th and 20th centuries. And it is what I would say the majority of biblical scholars accept today. Although, thank God, in the last 10 or 15 years, there's begun to be a shift away from this, realizing there's problems with this theory, which we're going to look at in a few minutes. You should have in your hands portions of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Just as this theory was being promulgated okay, in the mid to late 19th century, archaeologists were going, they say frantic, they were working hard because archaeology and geology had been given a new impetus by the positivist approach to history. Everything depended upon them. In the Mes ancient Mesopotamian area, therefore, lots of geological digs and archaeological digs were taking place. And in 1953, an archaeologist working in the area of ancient Mesopotamia found fragments of what became known as the Epic of Gilgamesh. Since its finding, some 
300 different accounts of a massive, an epic flood have been found from China to England to Russia to India to North America among the Indians to Scandinavia, Peru, and even in Hawaii. The Epic of Gilgamesh is, we could say, the most complete, although it's missing major portions. Well, the fact is that the Genesis account is the most complete. But next in line would be the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's missing major portions, as you will see. It does not read exactly straight through and needs something of a, of a scholar to be able to walk you through the text. I simply want to point out a few things for you and give you a little bit of a background. Gilgamesh was a king, as the story tells us. The king of modern-day, what would be modern-day Iraq. He lost a close associate, or maybe a friend even, of his, who died. And he was distraught by it. And he went on an epic journey to find a man who he had been told had received the gift of immortality. His name? Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim. It's our epic of Gilgamesh's Noah. He received immortality after going through a massive worldwide flood. And you have a handout before you. I just want to point out a couple points about it. And I highlighted a couple things for you. Utnapishtim is instructed by one of the gods. Pull down the house. Build yourself a ship. Abandon the possessions. Preserve life. Forsake goods and save life. Aboard the ship. Let every living being come. Morning came, and lo, a black cloud rose from the end of the sky, and the god Adad thundered therein. Come down to the next paragraph. The gods were panic-stricken. So far, you say, well, this is interesting, even just reading a couple sentences. But notice also some differences. The gods were panic-stricken before the deluge. They saw this massive deluge, and they became afraid. They fled and ascended to the heaven of Anu, the highest heaven. They cowered like dogs and lay down at the extremity of the world. The goddess Istar cried out like a woman in travail. Clearly, mythological language taking place here. Come down to the next paragraph. When the seventh day arrived, very interesting, they also had an understanding of the importance of the number seven. When the seventh day arrived, I brought out the dove and sent her forth. And the dove went and turned back. There was no resting place, so she returned. What's that sound like? Yeah. He sends out also a raven, as Noah had sent out. And he sends out, in addition, a swallow. So he sends out three birds, whereas Noah sends out two. I brought forth everything to the four corners of the world, and I offered a sacrifice. Do you remember what happened when Noah came out of the ark? What was the first thing he did? He offered sacrifice. And the text says, we just read it, that God smelled the pleasing odor. And I burnt incense on the top of the mountain. Seven and seven bowls I sent up, and beneath them I spread reeds, cedar wood, and myrtle. The gods smelled the odor. The gods smelled the sweet odor. And then what happens is, the god Enel, who had sent this massive deluge to wipe out 
mankind realizes that Utnapishtim had built a boat, that he had been saved through the waters, and that mankind had not been wiped out, that he had taken his family with him. Sounds familiar. And he realized, this God realized he had been outdone. And so he goes down to Utnapishtim and says, Hitherto, Utnapishtim was a man, but now he and his wife shall be like us, the gods. And Utnapishtim shall dwell afar off in the mouth of the rivers. I'll be posting more texts about this online, but you can see the comparison here. This was excavated in an area that was determined to be from the 7th century B.C., from a library in the area of the ancient city of Ur. 7th century B.C. You remember the dating now of the Genesis account is almost 300 years prior to that. Aha! The scholars told us. Do you see that the Genesis account is quite late And now, now that we know that there were other stories floating around about the flood, we have proof that the Israelites simply took from this previous tradition that had been floating around, a tradition filled with mythology, a tradition which they could not receive as monotheists. They edited the text. They purified it. They made it even an apologetic against their neighbors. But in the end, they simply stole it. They stole it from other traditions taking place in the area, purified it, and put it in their own holy book. Obviously, if we had time to read the text a little bit more carefully, this 7th century epic of Gilgamesh is filled, especially from a modern critical standpoint, but even from just a reason standpoint, filled with all sorts of mythological legend. Obviously, it can't be trusted. Obviously, it is simply a fairy tale made up by the people. And what about those other 300 or so documents from different parts of the world that say that a massive flood came? And that in that flood, the majority say that one man and his family were saved on a boat. Again, mythology. And all of those myths that were floating around in the Mesopotamian area fed into what then became your holy scriptures. Inspired by God? I don't think so. Again, I don't believe this. I'm just relating to you the problem. For us, the closeness of these two stories, I think, most likely would inspire us to say, wow, 300 documents stretching from China to Peru explaining basically the same story? That's amazing. It only goes to build up our faith in the text of Genesis. But not so for those looking to disprove Noah's flood. Remember, the entire biblical world, assuming Wellhausen's theory, accepted that late date of 450 B.C., And now we have clear evidence that the flood of Noah is simply a myth, like all the rest. A patchwork to make it worse. Remember our hermeneutic of suspicion. I want to introduce you to a scholar. His name 
Umberto Casuto, a Jewish scholar who lived in the middle of the last century and was bothered by what had become the dominant theory. He explains, look, there is no biblical school at his time, not one biblical school that had not accepted this theory. Not one. And he, a Jewish scholar, began his research. He begins with a question, is this skepticism justified? A skepticism of historical texts in general, and especially about biblical texts. Is it justified? Let us not approach the scriptural passage with the literary and aesthetic school of our time, looking for inconsistencies. But let us apply to them the standards obtaining in the ancient East, generally and among the people of Israel particularly. He looks first at the most important part of the documentary hypothesis, the division of the names of God, Elohim, Yahweh. He looks at them, and I want to read you a little bit of what he has to say. He first looks at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he says, he says look, Wellhausen and those following him have pointed out a very important aspect that many people for thousands of years had not noticed was there is minute changes in the text. Minute changes. And we have to be attentive to those changes. He says, yes, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are very different. Genesis 1 is a text which is shared or oriented toward all peoples, the entire world. It uses the name Elohim, a general name for God, a name shared with the other pagan cultures that were around a name which meant something to those outside of the people of Israel. Genesis 2, on the other hand, where Wellhausen found his warm and fuzzy God, Casuto points out that it is a text which speaks about covenant relationship, a covenant relationship between God and his people. And so within that text, the name Yahweh, a name revealed to Moses alone, is revealed to us a name which is proper only to those within the covenant family of God. He says, We find that in all branches of Hebrew literature, having a purely Israelite content, for example, the prophetic writings, the legal sections, and the poetic literature, insofar as it is as a national or folk character, the personal name of God is always Yahweh. And the other names serve as appellatives. Conversely, in the wisdom literature and in poetry that has been more or less influenced by it, whose subject matter is not exclusive to Israel, but is of universal import, Elohim is used. Now, is the flood particular just to the Jewish people? Is it a fact, a historical fact, known to virtually the entire world? Yes. And in fact, the name primarily used throughout the text of the flood is, what would you guess? Elohim. And where Yahweh is used, it's used in direct relationship between God and His people. In relationship to covenant and so forth. He takes a look then back at the text and we need to do the same ourselves. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. That verse which Wellhausen, say, slaughtered in half. He cut the biblical text in half and said this sentence was foreign 
one part from the other. And notice the change in the nature of the verse. Chapter 7, verse 16. They that entered, male and female of all flesh. First of all, where do we read about male and female? God created them. Genesis chapter 1. And what name is used in Genesis chapter 1? Elohim. Male and female of all flesh went in as Elohim had commanded him. And Yahweh. You see, Wellhausen was on to something, but his mistake was a hermeneutic of suspicion. Because our author here, far from being a cut and paste editor, is playing with this text so beautifully that when he refers to things which refer to the entire world, he uses a name which is oriented to them. But when he turns to the people of God, the ones that will be saved, to Noah and his children, he shuts them in because he's making a covenant to save them. Do you see? Quite beautiful. What about the duplications and the contradictions? We looked at Genesis chapter 6, verse 19. So turn back there. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two. How many friends? Two of every sort into the ark. But, as we looked at chapter 7, verse 2, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. Clear contradiction, right? If you bring to the text a hermeneutic of suspicion, yes. But if you're patient with an author who is weaving a beautiful, beautiful story, a true story, then you'll be patient with the author to find out what's going to take place. Turn to chapter 8, verse 20. As soon as Noah exits the ark, then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Why did God have him bring in two sets of animals? So that he would be prepared to offer sacrifice to God. If he hadn't, he would have killed some of the animals that he was meant to preserve to repopulate the earth. You say, well, that's a pretty simple one. Unless you bring to the text a hermeneutic of suspicion. Finally, to understand this problem, you need to be attentive to the unity of the whole text. This is a principle of Catholic exegesis. Be attentive to the unity of the whole text. And not just Noah's flood, but the entire Bible. Turn to chapter 7, verse 17. The flood continued. Remember the differences of time, right? 40 days versus 150 days. One of the evidences of a patchwork theory. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly. Notice, the waters increased. The flood continued. The rain came down. The deeps, as some said, it says the deeps broke forth. Some say there must have been a massive tsunami must have hit the land. A tsunami like we've never seen came forth. Forty days, the water continued to come down and gush forth. But, in verse 24, the waters prevailed upon the earth. What did they do? Did they continue to pour down? No. 
Kasudo looks at the Hebrew text. He says, the word there means strong. They prevailed. They remained upon the earth for 150 days. After the 40 days that it rained, the water remained flooding the land for 150 days. I don't think I have to continue with that because it's quite obvious. Then the water abates. It comes down. Obviously, more can be said, but considering our time constraints, this would be sufficient to give you a taste. I need to point out to you one other thing. It's on the back of your handout there. What you see looks like a kind of a bunch of craziness, doesn't it? It's three different structures that I've put out there for you. It's just three. There's many more. But what's called a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure from the Greek letter chi in the form of an X. It's a common literary usage in ancient Hebrew literature and in literature of the entire ancient world of the Mesopotamian area and beyond. Because these texts were meant, and before they were ever written, they were handed on orally. They needed to be memorized. It was a tool to help us memorize, but also to focus our attention on the most important part of the text. It just is not only in the Old Testament, it's also in the New. We'll take a look at that when we study the Gospel of John. But that the entire text is put together so beautifully in such a poetic fashion that the first verse of the text reflects the final verse of the text. They're two sides of the same coin. And so with the second and the second and so forth. And it's not just, by the way, in verses. If you go back in and study this, you'll see it's not verse because the verses are put in there quite late. It's usually the chiastic structure is based upon ideas. One idea, another idea, back and forth. For the simplicity's sake, I want to look at the center of the largest chiasm I've placed there for you. I'm getting this out of, by the way, these, um, I didn't put that together myself. I'm not quite right enough to, to come up with this. But other guys have. Before Abraham was, excellent text. You can order this. I think it's out of print, but you might be able to get it you know, on Amazon or something. Come take a look later if you're interested. And he's got all of this laid out saying, this idea of a patchwork text is absolute nonsense. And it's nonsense, and it's proven to be nonsense by the discovery of chiastic structures throughout the text. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. This, by the way, does not mean that God forgot about Noah. Okay? It means God is preserving him. If you're in the mind of God, you receive the life of God. And God is about to bring about the restoration of mankind through Noah. In the very center of this entire chiasm are those words, and God remembered Noah. And God remembered Noah. After this torrential downpour, after the wiping out of mankind and all of the animals, God remembered Noah. There's hope. Just above chapter 8, verse 1, how many days did the water prevail upon the earth? 150 days. Just before that, God remembered Noah, right? But look at chapter 8, verse 3. The second sentence. At the end of 150 days. If we go up above the text even further to chapter 7, verse 17, the flood continued 40 days upon the earth. And if we go down below that verse, God remembered Noah, to chapter 8, verse 6, and the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the windows of the ark. Do you see that? Back and forth. 
this mirror image on both sides of the chiasm, all feeding into the central point of the text, which is that God is there not to destroy man, not like in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where the gods are plotting to destroy mankind, but God is planning to save us. God is planning to save us. You can take these home and study these chiastic structures yourself. This is only a small sample of what's in the text. The entire text, as you see in that central chiasm, the entire text of Noah's flood, from beginning to end, is a great poetic chiasm. So much for Wellshausen's patchwork. It's a beautiful piece of literature. Casuto says, if we examine the section of the flood without bias, without that hermeneutic of suspicion, and pay heed to its finished structure, it becomes apparent that the section in its present form cannot possibly be the outcome of the synthesis of fragments culled from various sources. For from such a process there could not have emerged a work so beautiful and harmonious in all its parts and details. I have very little time left. In fact, she's flashing zero at me. So I have to conclude. But I have one short section we have to talk about, and we'll be done. We're left to consider one additional question, the dating presumed to be given in this text, and its supposed dependence on various pagan myths, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh. Remember that the reason for the dating of 450 B.C., for such a late dating of the text, was why. The Yahwist account, full of life and color, God who cares, this is pure religion. But the priestly account, more precise, deliberate, and cold, must have been caused by the priestly source who was in Babylon, who was trying to trick the people to keep their power. But Casuto has blown the entire documentary hypothesis out of the water. And I've only given you a small sample of it. Blown it out of the water. And therefore, his dating of 450 B.C. is also out. You might think, well, he must have, he must have um, based his dating of the text on something more than a theory about how God was cold and distant. He must have had manuscript evidence that took the text back to 450 B.C. Do you realize that the earliest Hebrew manuscript of the book of Genesis that we have is 9th century A.D.? Do you know that? And the earliest Greek manuscript we have is 4th century A.D. His entire dating of the book is based upon his theory. And his theory has been shown to be nothing more than poppycock. If this is the case then, who did write the story of Noah's flood? There is one man and one man alone this text has been associated with, and that man is Moses, living about 1,500 years, maybe earlier, 1,500 years before the coming of Christ, much earlier than the Epic of Gilgamesh. Why is it so important? Because if tradition is correct, then Mosaic authorship places this text prior to the Epic of Gilgamesh. 
and within the same general time frame as other small fragmentary evidence. Far from Noah's flood being dependent upon the myths that are floating around, the text of Noah's flood, complete as it is, ought to be considered the standard from which other stories of the flood were drawn. It would make sense of a worldwide flood that that story came from the one family that did survive and then spread out as that family went further and further away from the one true God. And as they went further and further away from the one true God, the story became corrupted. And certain myths, certain pagan ideas were then inserted into the text. I want to conclude then with a quotation that I put together. I use a little bit of my own uh, literary license by taking a text that was originally written by Father Ronald Knox. He wrote it in relationship to David and the Psalms, defending the Davidic authorship of the Psalms. I took it, I hope he doesn't mind, I took it and applied it to our text today. And I'll read it to you. The early chapters of Genesis are, as it were, the church's most nascent childhood memories. It is upon these stories that she falls back for consolation. The Pentateuch, or the writings of Moses, we call them. Learned people would have us believe that this is a false title. The collection is only a patchwork, haphazardly compiled by various editors. However, common sense tells you that the bulk of the text is written by the great prophet Moses. In the first place, because a literary, great literary tradition does not grow round a man's name unless he really has some literary work to his credit. Imitators do not arise until there is something to imitate. You can trace Moses all through the book of Genesis, and in particular the story of the great deluge. As Gerda's work is full of Gerda, Moses' work is full of Moses. You are haunted everywhere by the echoes of his breathless career. Which of the ancient authors could have understood what it was like to float in a wooden basket across the waters in which your brothers and sisters were drowning? Who knew what it was like to be saved through the waters while the multitudes of the greatest army in the world were swallowed up in seconds? Who but Moses understood what it was like for the sun to be blocked out and death to prevail upon the earth? Moses, the author of Genesis, understood this from personal experience. And so it was to him that God drew forth the truth about the first stories of mankind. If someone would like to contend about mosaic authorship and the traditional interpretation of the text, they contend not with Umberto Casuto or with Deacon Sabatino. They contend with Moses himself, with Ezekiel and the prophet Isaiah, with Luke the Evangelist and St. Peter, with St. John Chrysostom, and St. Jerome, with St. Gregory Nazianzen, and St. Thomas Aquinas, the entire Jewish and Catholic tradition, they contend with Jesus Christ himself. Thank you very much. We're going to take our uh, usual breaks. We have our handouts posted on our website in the Learning Center. So go to the website. Click on Online Learning Center and go there. How many of you have visited our new Online Learning Center? Oh, you heard it live. No, oh, that's, I'm glad you said that because what are we putting there? It's not just the live broadcast, but we're posting all sorts of documents there. 
So when I'm running across, and not only stuff related to our talks, but other interesting news that comes across the wire that I think might be helpful to us, I post them there. And I think I posted a couple quotes from the church fathers on the flood and things like that. Can you please explain the significance of the number eight in the story of Noah? We were talking about this before the talk, and I, I was glad we, he was interested because, of course, St. Michael's being in the form of an octagon. Also, I believe St. John the Beloved. Am I correct about that? Yeah. And St. Ambrose. Okay. Uh, oftentimes, ancient uh, baptistries also in the form of an octagon. And in fact, if you go and look at most baptismal fonts, why eight? Why eight? First of all, turn to Genesis 8.18. So Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Eight people were, and all were saved in the ark. Now turn your Bibles to 1 Peter, just before the book of Revelation and the epistles of John. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went to preach the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey... You know, I take the modern biblical scholars to task on this one too. Because Jesus, we say in the Creed, He descended into Hades. Why? To speak to those, to preach to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through baptism. Okay, so he points this out explicitly. Eight people were saved, and notice the next verse, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What's he saying? Just like God saved Noah through the waters of the flood, Noah and his wife, and his three sons and their three wives, eight people in all were saved through the waters of the flood, so God is going to save you, and your sinful nature will die and be buried in the waters of baptism, just like sinful man was buried in the waters of the flood, and you will be saved through those waters to come forth from those waters renewed in the image and likeness of God. And as St. Paul says, Death no longer has dominion over Christ, and therefore, death no longer has dominion over us. But we go one step further. Why did God save eight people in the ark? Why? And the fathers tell us for one reason. Because Jesus Christ, being the God of creation, and being the new Adam, who came to reverse what the old Adam had done, was put to death on what day of the week, friends? Friday. On Friday, which for the Jews was what number? The sixth day of the week. Who was made on the sixth day of the week in Genesis? Mankind was made, yeah. Adam was created on the sixth day. And so Jesus Christ, being the new Adam, put the old Adam to death. On Friday, being the God of creation, He rested in the tomb on the seventh day. And being the God of creation, He rose from the dead, the fathers tell us, on the eighth day of the week. But what's the eighth day of the week? A day which knows no end. 
the Lord has taken us out of the cycle of seven days and brought us into the eternal day of the Lord, the eighth day. And it's into that day, and it's into that person, the resurrected Jesus Christ, that we are now baptized. And therefore, Christian churches have very commonly been built in an octagon, and more importantly, baptismal fonts and baptistries, built in an octagon to tell you the truth about your baptism. That it's not some nice thing we do because the priest told us to do it. No, it's what we do to escape the ravages of death, to be inserted into the eternal day of the Lord so that death no longer has dominion over us. I know that was a little bit on the long side. I'm sorry. The civilization that Gilgamesh was from, between the Tigris and Euphrates River, which uh, referred to as Eden, is supposedly the oldest civilization. Isn't it possible that Moses would have an account from them of this flood and used that in his writing of uh, Genesis? Yeah, here's the thing. No doubt there were various traditions floating around among the pagan peoples and among the Israelites. You know, you can hold this as a Catholic, but it seems a bit on the fantastic side that God kind of came down and zapped Moses one day, and all of a sudden, aha, he understood the entire story of the creation of man and the flood of Noah and so forth. No, it makes a whole lot more sense that this was an oral tradition that had also been passed down from father to son, that Moses then received and was the first one to actually write it down. Oh, he could have received a written text prior to that, no problem. But that God intervened in the writing down of the text when Moses did this, preserving him from the errors of the pagans, preserving him from myth and legend and, and all sorts of false ideas that were floating around at the time, to write down the true, authentic story of the flood. Not just to tell us the historical reality that took place. Yes, that's fine. But what was Moses' purpose of writing down? Was he writing to give an apologetic against the positivists? No! He was writing to tell that God had intervened to save mankind. That what looked around us like a creation which was falling into the abyss. And I think it might be a good lesson for us today when we all stand around and say, this thing's going to pot. Guess what? God's right in the middle of it crucified for our sins. And for those that come to Him, there is a chance of restoration. There is a chance of life. That when all of those other peoples looked at what seemed impossible, the angry God, or the anger of the pagan gods, they found one who had compassion. Who had compassion on righteousness. On the one man who was found to preserve the image and likeness of God. And to him, he saved him. Why? Not just for Noah, but for us also. There's a further purpose in the text to point us to the hand of God of salvation who's going to bring the fullness of salvation to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and in baptism. We'll do one more. I'm going long. I'm sorry. Who exactly were the Nephrim, the variously translated angels or giants who came down to uh, bear sons with the daughters of men in the first verses of Genesis 6. Go back to Genesis chapter 6. It's a little off topic, but just tangentially related. We'll deal with it quickly. 
chapter 6, verse 4. This is the story. It's not really tangential. I mean, it's kind of the root that kind of drives the story of the flood. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. Okay, this has been a difficult verse for many. How to deal with this. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? And worse, who are the Nephilim? It sounds mythical. Who are these people? There's a principle. I heard this on a CD one time, a long time ago, and I never forgot it. I don't know who said it. Otherwise, I would footnote him. A text without a context is no text at all. A text without a context is no text at all. And so we have to go back, in order to understand this, to Genesis chapter 4. And I don't have time to go through it in detail, but you can look at chapter 4 and chapter 5. There's a genealogy given. There's two genealogies given. First of all, in chapter 4, the genealogy of Cain and the genealogy of Seth who replaces Abel in the story. Abel's the righteous man. Seth is the righteous man. And notice what is said about Seth in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generation of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his image and likeness. He made, sorry, he made him in his likeness and likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. What does it mean to be in one's image and likeness in the book of Genesis? It means to be a son. It means to be related by nature. The sons of God versus the sons of men are given to us right here in chapter 4 and chapter 5. As we follow the line of Cain, we have seven generations. The number for covenant among the Hebrews. And at the end of that covenant... A man named Lamech, who is a very, very, very evil man. The fullness of evil is found in the line of Cain, the sons of men. But those who are in this image and likeness of God, through Adam to Seth, seven generations, brings you to chapter 5, verse 22, and to the man Enoch, who walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The tradition tells us Enoch was assumed into heaven. So who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? The daughters of men are from the line of Cain, and the sons of God are from the lines of Seth. St. Ephraim tells us that the sons of God became ensnared by the daughters of men. The sons of God being strong, they were living near the Garden of Eden, eating the fruit of the garden, Versus the daughters of men who had gone far away from the household of God. And they were weak. And when they intermarried, they bore children who to the sons of men looked like giants. They were strong. They were well nourished. They were huge in comparison to these weaklings. The weaklings that had been out there away from the garden and away from food. And so that's the traditional interpretation given among the fathers some have said they're angels that came down and had relations with men. I think it's a pretty ridiculous answer, and I don't think as Catholics we can really hold to that. God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.